this morning on, in more ways than one, which you'll see as we get through this message. But you see I'm wearing um, old people glasses this morning. It's official. You may have seen me in years past wearing a set of glasses so that I could see you all out there. And that those seemed fine for a long time. And then as I started doing messages up here, I could still see you all. And as I looked down, I was like, I was like looking underneath my glasses. So I went to the eye doctor and she's like, yeah, you're old. You need stuff halfway down on these that you can read your Bible. And I was like, ah. So this floor is kind of wavy this morning. This is my first stab at this, so bear with me. Go ahead and open up to Genesis chapter 15. Continuing on in our series this morning, our, our look at the life of Abraham. And so you may remember that last week, Abram had a great, great victory, didn't he? A victory that by all standards he really shouldn't have had. And we saw how God was gracious to allow Abram to go rescue his nephew Lot. 300 some men go and conquer thousands. The odds were completely against Abram. And yet God was gracious and God was good. And Abram was careful and he was sure to make sure that God got all the credit and all the glory. And so this week what we're going to see is God uh, making a covenant with Abram. And Michael and I have chatted at great length about this. And what we're going to see in chapter 15 for a moment is kind of a a snapshot of what we would call maybe a larger picture of God making a covenant with Abram. You may remember that when we first started our study, when we began in Genesis chapter 12, we saw that God said to Abram, Abram, I'm calling you from the land of Ur. I'm calling you from out of all the nations of the world and I'm going to make you a nation unto myself. And Abram, I want you to follow me. I want you to come with me and I'm going to show you a land that I'm going to give to you and your descendants. I'm going to make you into a great nation. We get another reference to that in chapter 13. And then in chapter 15, we're going to have an even greater confirmation in reference of this. But we're also going to see in a couple of weeks when Michael takes us through chapter 17 that God is going to continue to confirm this covenant that he's going to make with Abram to give him many, many descendants, to turn him into a great nation, and to give him this land that he will then also pass on to Abram's descendants. So in other words, I'm sharing this because we are looking at a snapshot at one point of God's promise and covenant to Abram. Does that make sense? And so as we go through chapter 15 this morning, we're going to break this down into three sections. And the first section, I'm going to do something that Michael does sometimes, and he's always saying, why don't you do this? He's got his hands up back there. He's super excited. Is this called an alliteration? Is that what it's called? Yeah. All of our sections this morning are going to have a C to them. Alright? So our first section is going to be verses 1 through 5. And we're going to title that, God comforts Abram. God comforts Abram in verses 1 through 5. Our second section, verses 6 through 11. God credits Abram. Verses 6 through 11. God credits Abram. And then our third section is going to be verses 12 through 21. God 
cuts covenant with Abram. God cuts a covenant with Abram in verses 12 through 21. So let's just read verses 1 through 5 here for a moment. The text says that after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. And Abram said, O Lord God, what will thou give me since I am childless? And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Since thou hast given no offspring to me, one born in my house is going to have to be my heir. But then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir, but one who shall come forth from your own body. He shall be your heir. And he took him outside and said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars, if you are even able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. And so in verse 1 we see that God says to Abram, when he comes to him, Do not fear, I am your shield and your great reward. And if you're like me, and hopefully you're not because it will drive you crazy, but if you're like me, you may say, well, what was Abram fearful of? Why did God feel a need to come to Abram and say, Abram, don't fear. I will be your shield. I will be your very great reward. Well, uh, I'm going to throw out a couple of options that maybe was going on in Abram's mind. What if Abram was just simply in awe by being approached by God? You know, we've seen that in Scripture. In Genesis 26, God tells Isaac not to fear. In Exodus 3, we learn that Moses hid his face and he was afraid to look at God. Judges 6 tells us that Gideon was told by God, by the angel of the Lord, don't fear, Gideon. You might remember that Uh, I think it was last, not this past Christmas, but the Christmas before when we talked about Zechariah in the temple. The angel appeared to Zechariah and said, Don't fear. And you can imagine what he must have felt like. He's supposed to be the only one in there in the holy place offering sacrifice. He's supposed to be the only one authorized to go in there. And all of a sudden he turns around and there's somebody else there, right? That would be fearful. You might remember from our time at the Dietrich's house this Christmas when we mentioned how the shepherds may have felt. When they were guarding their flocks by night, they're hanging out, it's a starry sky, probably getting ready to sleep if they weren't already asleep, and all of a sudden within the sheep pen, an angel appears to them. The angel says, don't be afraid. I bring you tidings, good news. And so what we see in scriptures, we do see a pattern that when God or his messengers are dispensed to humanity, there is an awe, there's a reverence, there's a fear. It's a healthy fear, but it is startling. And God oftentimes has to say to humanity, don't fear, it's okay. So maybe that's what was going on. Maybe Abram was experiencing a fear when God approaches him. But maybe a second option that... Abram might have been fearing was retaliation from the kings. We talked about how he just won this great, great battle and the odds were completely against him but God was on his side and so he rescues Lot and he defeats all those kings in the valley of Siddim, right? But if you're Abram and you just won this great victory over this very, very powerful group of kings, might you not kind of be watching your back? I mean, 
Could he have been concerned about some retaliation from these kings? And God says, don't fear. I'll be your shield. I'll be your protection. I'll be your very great reward. And then maybe a third option. And I, This is kind of where I like to land myself. Partly because I think some of the fabric of the text points to this. Maybe Abram's fearful of the future of his estate. His legacy. You know, Michael mentioned that a, a strong possibility of Abram making the decisions that he did when he went down to Egypt. Remember how he lied about who Sarai was? You know, Michael said there could have been some degree of innocence in that. That Abram was well aware that God had promised him that he would become a great nation. Well, how does that happen if Sarai gets taken from him? How does that happen if he has no wife in which to bear and become a great nation? So, Abram may have very innocently thought, hey, i got to protect this promise that God has made to me, otherwise I'm not going to be able to have great descendants, as numerous as the stars. Well, I wonder if maybe... He's sitting here thinking, there's been some time that has passed. I followed you, Lord. I came to this land that you showed me. There was a famine. I went down to Egypt. I've come back. I still don't have an heir. I still don't have any descendants. I'm kind of concerned about what's going to happen to my estate. I'm concerned about what's going to happen to my legacy. You said this would happen, but I am not seeing it happen yet. And so maybe the fabric of Verses 2 and 3, when Abram says, Oh Lord God, what will you give me since I am childless and, and the heir of my house is going to be Eliezer? Maybe what Abram is concerned about and what he's fearful of is, Hey, I'm not seeing these promises yet. What's going to happen? Verse 3 says, You haven't given me any offspring yet, Lord. What you promised has not yet occurred. You ever been there? You ever known promises that God has made to you from His Word? And you're like, Lord, I know that this is what the Bible says. But man, I don't see it playing out in my life. I sure could use you right now, Lord. And I'm kind of scared. I'm a little worried about what this situation is going to look like tomorrow. You've promised that you would never leave me or forsake me, but I don't feel you close to me right now, Lord. Maybe this is what was going through Abram's mind. I don't know. But look at what verse 4 says. And this, is, I think, is, is beautiful in verses 4 and 5. What we see here is that God comforts. I said our first section here is that God is going to comfort Abram. God gives Abram comfort about his promises. He says in verse 4, Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir, but one who shall come forth from your own body. He shall be your heir. And remember what Abram said? Well, how am I supposed to know this? God says, verse 5, And he took him outside and said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars, if you are able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. Took him outside and said, Just go ahead and try and count those stars. Give it a shot. That's what your descendants are going to be like. That's how good I am. That's how awesome I am as a holy creator. I can do this for you, Abram. 
And I believe that this reveals a great compassion that God has for Abram's struggle. If, if in fact, Abram was struggling with the fact that he had not seen the realization of God's promises yet in a son and an heir, God is compassionate for Abram and he says, Come on. Come outside with me. Take a look up. That's what I'm going to do. That's what you can plan on, Abram. Isn't that cool? You know, Psalm 86... 15 says, But you, O Lord, are a great God, a merciful and gracious God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness and truth. Exodus 34, 6. God is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. Matthew 8. You might remember this. O ye of little faith, why are you so afraid? Then he rebuked the winds and the waves. Remember when the disciples on the boat were just shaking in their boots and their sandals and the storm was just rocking that boat? And they come to Jesus and they're like, Jesus, why? how can you sleep at the time like this? And he says, O you, O ye of little faith. And with a word he calms the storm. He showed compassion for his friends on the boat. Remember Philip? We did this at, um, on Good Friday. Lord, show us the Father, and that will satisfy us. If you just show us the Father, we'll be good. That's all we ask. Nothing more. Nothing big. And Jesus says, how long have I been with you, and you still don't get it? He says, I tell you, and you should know this, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And there was a little bit of a rebuke there, but Jesus is compassionate, and he comforts, and he shares with those disciples on that last night. Remember in the upper room, after the resurrection, Thomas says, he wasn't there the first time Jesus appeared. You guys are crazy. You guys are nuts. I saw him crucified. I know they put him in that grave. You all are seeing stuff. I'll believe it when I see him firsthand and I can touch the holes. And Jesus appears to all of them again in a closed room, once again. How did he get in there? And he says, come on, Thomas. Go ahead and touch. Feel my side. It's me. Doesn't rebuke him. Doesn't crush him. I mean, he shows compassion. Thomas, I know you're struggling. I get it. Come feel. Abram, I know you're struggling. Come outside. Let me show you. God is wonderful like that. Turn with me to uh, 1 Timothy, if you would. Keep your finger in first Gen- or Genesis well, uh, 15, obviously. Uh, turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 1. First Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. This is what Paul says about the grace of God and the compassion and the comfort that God showed to him. He says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful putting me into service even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor and yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost of all. Not accepting Matt Daly, but aside from Matt Daly, you know, Apostle Paul here is the chief of sinners. 
And yet, for this reason, I found mercy in order that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate His perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in Him for eternal life. Do you see the compassion there and the patience that Paul articulates about the Lord Jesus in his own life? I was a persecutor, a blasphemer. I was the chief of sinners. You don't get any worse than I am or was, Paul says. But God, in His gracious, merciful, loving kindness, showed compassion to me and saved me and called me into service for the King of Kings. That's what Paul says about himself. And so, this morning, like Abram, God comforts us and is patient with us when we don't always understand. Just like Abram here, God is patient with us. He comforts us. And He's gracious to us and merciful when we don't understand either. But God doesn't stop there. Look at verses 6 through 11. Verse 6. Then he believed in the Lord. Who? Abram. Then he believed in the Lord. God took him outside, told him to look up at the stars, try and count them. This is what your descendants are going to be like. And it says that God reckoned it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. And he said, O Lord God, how may I know that I shall possess it? So he said to him, Bring me a three-year-old heifer and a three-year-old female goat and a three-year-old ram and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. Then he brought all these to him and cut them in two and laid each half opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds. And the birds of prey came down upon the carcasses and Abram drove them away. So we see here in verse 6, God takes him out. God reaffirms his promise to him. I'm going to make you into a great nation like I told you when I called you out of the land of Ur. I will keep my promise. That's who I am, Abram. And it says that after looking up at the stars and, 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 and rhetorically trying to count them, it says that Abram believed and the Lord reckoned it to him as righteousness. Turn to Galatians chapter 3 with me. Galatians chapter 3. We're going to begin in verse 6. Some of you might know that the letter to the church in Galatia was written in part because they were falling victim to false teachers who said, you got to obey the law. Faith in Christ Jesus is not enough. you got to go back to obeying the law. And so Paul writes this in verse 6. Even so... Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the nations shall be blessed in you. So then, those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. Alright, just keep that in mind. Keep that in mind for a second. Now flip over to Romans chapter 4. Paul reminds the church in Galatia 
Stop falling victim to the misnomer that you've got to obey the law. That you are made righteous, that you are saved because of your works, because you have somehow done some perfect list of deeds. Because not even Abraham could take credit for anything. It was his belief, Paul says, that was credited to him as righteousness. It was his faith and trust in what the Lord had promised him without having seen it yet that God said, I'm crediting you with righteousness now. Okay? Now, chapter 4. I could read all of chapter 4, but we're not going to do that here in the interest of time. But I do want to summarize it for a moment. Paul, in Romans chapter 4, uses Abraham as an example of the righteousness that we have in Christ Jesus. And basically, in verses 1-8, through he says, that righteousness is because of faith and not his deeds. So you just saw, in Genesis chapter 15, that Abraham hadn't done anything yet. Abram was called righteous by God... Simply because he believed when God reiterated the promise that I'm going to make you a great nation. Abraham hadn't really done anything to earn righteousness. It was credited to him, attributed to him by God for his faith and his trust. In verses 9-17, through 17, Paul says that the righteousness wasn't because of his circumcision. Now we do know that God... We'll call Abram to circumcision, but it's not circumcision that saves Abram. It's not circumcision that makes him righteous. And Paul reminds in Romans that Jew nor Gentile is neither saved or called righteous because of circumcision or uncircumcision, but rather faith in Christ Jesus. In verses 18 to 22, Paul, in a sense, is saying it wasn't Abraham's spry young body that produced a son. It was Abraham's hope and faith in God's sovereign promise of a son. We'll get to that in a few weeks. Abraham's no spring chicken here. But his hope and his trust in the promises of God brought about a son because of who God is. And then in verses 23 through 25, Paul reminds us that our righteousness in Christ is credited to us through faith and nothing else. The righteousness that we have in Christ Jesus is all about our confession of faith and our trust in the Lord and not deeds, not things that we have done that we could take credit for it. And so flip back to Genesis, if you would. We flip back to Genesis and we look at uh, verse 7 for a second. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. So God reiterates that the other part of his promise was not just to turn Abram and make him into a great nation with many descendants as numerous as the stars, but also to give him this land. And Abram replies in verse 8, Yeah, but how am I going to know this? How do I know this is true? Well, we don't get the impression that this is a faithless statement, but rather an innocent question. You know, God has reckoned to Abraham righteousness because of his faith. So he believes God. Here, I believe what we see in verse 8 when he says, yeah, but how am I going to know this? He's asking for clarity. Do you remember when the disciples were walking and talking with Jesus in Matthew chapter 24? And Jesus says, you know, there's going to come a time where this is all going to be overthrown and no stone will be left unturned. And he begins to talk about the destruction of the temple and he's talking about end times. And remember what the disciples asked of Jesus? They said, when is this going to happen and what will be the sign to tell us that this is coming? 
Well, this wasn't disbelief. This was an innocent question asking for a little clarity. How are we going to know? What's it going to look like? What are we to be looking for? When will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age, Jesus? But by contrast, for just a moment, this came up at our Wednesday morning men's ministry. I mentioned Zechariah having an encounter with the angel of the Lord in the temple. Do you remember how that exchange went? The angel promised to Zechariah a son and a few other things. And he essentially kind of shows a little bit of disbelief, doesn't he? No? Now you're mute. Alright? Here's what you get for your disbelief. And so my point is this. You see, Zechariah had a responsibility. He was called by God to be a priest and to lead God's people. To intercede on their behalf. The expectation upon Zechariah because of who he was and his position was that of trust and faith. He should have trusted the angel, but he didn't. So it was a matter of accountability. There wasn't the innocence to it. It was almost a disbelief. Yeah, right. I'm going to have a son in this, this old body. All right, well, you know, nine months, you're going to be mute for asking that question. But we don't see that here. We don't see an indication that this was a faithless question by Abram, but rather an innocent question. God, what's going to be the sign? How, how am I going to know this? And so God's response, again, is another gracious response which is to initiate a covenant-cutting ceremony with Abram, which he would have understood from ancient Near East cultures. And we're going to come back to this. Um, And so God says, I'll honor your desire for a sign. Do this for me, Abram. Bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a pigeon. And Abram likely would have understood what God was beginning to initiate. I'm going to have Katie come up for a second. I already talked to her about this. I said, you, you want to be a helper? You know how magicians have just wonderful, beautiful helpers? And, and they, put them, they put them in a box, and then they begin to saw and cut them? You know, what, what, what Abram is, is called here to do is, is to cut these sacrifices, so I'm going to need you to just lay down here. No, 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 no I'm just kidding. Okay. Here's what I'm going to have you do for a moment. While you're doing this, we'll continue to look at our passage for a second. We got some sacrifices here. I was going to bring a saw, but I'm going to let you use scissors instead. Now, Mirren has been gracious to um, donate donate these sacrifices, okay? And Mirren has said explicitly, this unicorn is to be the ram because it has a horn. I get that. That makes sense. We'll call we'll call this the goat, and we'll call this the heifer. All right. So get to cutting in half, would you please, beautiful beautiful assistant? I just let him fall on the ground. Let him fall on the ground because this is we're going to see an illustration of what it was like to cut a covenant and what the sacrifices look like. The blood spills out and the stuffings are going to spill out. And we'll clean it up later. Okay. Thank you. So God instructs Abram to do this. All right. Three year old heifer, three year old ram, female goat. Turtle dove and a pigeon. Perfect. <laughs> and so the second thing that I want to remind us, and we're going to... Hey. <laughs> so, here's what I want to remind us this morning. Like Abram, 
We are credited with righteousness for our faith, not our works. Just like Abram, we are credited with righteousness for our faith, not our works. You see, Abram's obedience to up and leave Ur was rooted first in his faith. Right? Abram's... That's good. Don't leave yet. Abram's success in rescuing Lot was rooted first in his faith. Abram's obedience with these sacrifices and what we see here is that all he did was bring them before the Lord, he cut them, and then he protected them from the birds of prey. He chased the birds off that wanted to scavenge on the carcasses. That's it. He doesn't really get to take credit for much else. And that was all based on faith and trust in God. You know, we obey God's commands because we believe, but not because we are trying to obtain salvation. Right? We are obedient today because we trust and we love the Lord. We don't obey because we are trying to work and earn our salvation. Jesus said in John 14, He said, If you love me, you will obey my commandments. If you love me, you will obey. Abram was called righteous by God first because of his faith and his trust. Bringing the sacrifices, cutting them, and chasing off the birds of prey was obedience that was already rooted in trust and faith. Not obedience that was trying to accomplish and gain a status in the Lord, but because he loved the Lord. And the same is true of us. Now, let's come back to this covenant cutting ceremony that God is going to initiate with Abram. So, my beautiful assistant here has cut these in half, which Abram would have been well familiar with. And in verse 10, Then he brought all these things to him and cut them in two. And it says, what did he do with them? He laid each half opposite the other, but he didn't cut the birds. And then as these sacrifices, as these carcasses are laying opposite each other, he just simply chases off the birds of prey that want to scavenge on the meat, right? So let's just take our ram, right? And so Abram does this with the ram. Perfect. He does this with the goat and that with the heifer. Cuts the sacrifices in half and places them opposite each other. That's it. That's all Abram gets to take credit for. You can go sit down. Chases the birds. And look at verse 12. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, terror and a great darkness fell upon him. So, you have to imagine, it says that, you know, think about these animals, these three-year-old animals. Not easy to cut them, right? Not easy to get through that. So it takes some time. And now, now Abram's he's sitting there and he's, he's relaxing back in his Adirondack chair, kind of going, alright, what's next, God? I'm not talking about being lazy. I'm not trying to you know, paint a uh, bad picture of Abram, but it's a waiting game. God, I, I think I know what you're about to do. I'm familiar with this culture. The ancient Near East participated and engaged in these covenant-cutting ceremonies regularly. I think I get it, what you're doing, God. But what's next? 
it's a waiting game. Chases some birds. And then the sun begins to set. It says that Abram falls into a deep sleep. And behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. And God said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. But I... God says, I will also judge the nation whom they will serve. And afterward, they will come out with many possessions. And as for you, in verse 15, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. Then in the fourth generation, they shall return here, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. And it came about when the sun had set, that it was very dark, and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I have given this land from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. You know, verse 12 says that this great terror came upon Abram. And if you're like me, you may ask, What was this great terror? What was this fear? What was it that Abram was struggling with as the sun set and as he fell into this deep, deep sleep? This is pure speculation. I'm I'm offering that up right now and saying this is pure speculation. But in verses 13 through 16, I wonder if maybe what God had done was to privilege Abram with um, a preview of what his descendants would be like. Is that possible? Could God have maybe previewed or given Abram some insight into what his great nation might look like in the future? Possibly. Is this part of the the sleep? Is this part of the great terror that may have fell upon him? But look at what what happens. He says, Your descendants will be strangers in a strange land, not their own. That, That could be kind of terrifying. They will be enslaved 400 years. Oh, you don't want to hear that. But God says, I'm going to judge the nation that's enslaving your people, Abram. Your descendants are going to depart with many possessions. You'll die at a great old age. And after the fourth generation, your descendants will return to the land that I'm giving to you. And oh, by the way, the sin of the Amorites who are currently in Canaan, this land, will ultimately be judged by God as well. And you know, if you're familiar with your Old Testament fabric, this happened exactly as God said it would. The Egyptians ultimately got judged for their sins uh, through the plagues, the plague of the firstborn, right? the death. Um, we know that the Israelites left Egypt. The text says that they plundered the Egyptians, took a bunch of gold and silver. They were given a lot of it. Egypt was like, just get out. Just go. Get, get, get away from us. And they came out with great possessions that God had promised in Genesis chapter 25, verse 7, we learn that Abram lived to the ripe old age of 175 years, I think it says. Wow. What a, what a great blessing to have a ripe old age and to be buried with your forefathers. We know that Abram's descendants returned to the promised land. That's what the book of Joshua is all about, the conquest of the promised land. So God held good on that promise too. They were able to come back after wandering, after 400 years in captivity in Egypt, and they go back into the land that God had promised to Abram. We also know that God 
by way of Joshua, by way of sending Abraham's descendants back into the promised land, used that as a form of judgment upon the Amorites who were living in the land. You know, those Amorites had become really, really despicable people. I mean, their practices were abhorrent. Passing children through the fire as child sacrifices and pretty much anything you could possibly imagine under the sun. But God says here that this won't happen. I'm not going to judge them until it's time to take your descendants, Abram, back into the land for the sin of the Amorites. He says, the sin of the Amorites has not been completed yet. It has not come to its boiling point where I'm ready to just crush them. And so by way of taking Abram's descendants back into the land that was promised to them, that serves as a form of judgment upon the Amorites for their sins and for their activities. And you know that Israel had victory at Jericho and Ai and Palestine and Makeda and other places when they went in there. Now look at verse 17. And it came about when the sun had set that it was very dark and behold there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between these pieces. So I won't say that I know a lot about the ancient Near East process of cutting covenants, but essentially part of what took place in cutting a covenant with somebody else was that you were making an agreement with them. And there were terms. And you were coming together and you were saying, I'm going to uphold my end of the agreement, you're going to uphold your end of the agreement. We're going to cut these sacrifices. This is going to be a blood agreement. The blood is spilling out between these sacrifices and the two parties would pass between these sacrifices to confirm and cut covenant. And oftentimes there was consumption of the sacrifices afterwards. Oftentimes there was a meal accompanied with it. But in this case, in this case, do we see two parties passing between the sacrifices? We see a smoking oven and a flaming torch by God while Abram's over here in a deep, deep sleep. So we see God cutting a covenant, cutting an agreement, making promise to Abram, whereby God is the one passing through the sacrifices, and God is the one operating as the two parties, operating on Abram's behalf because of the sovereignty and the loving kindness of God. He's playing both roles in this, he's doing both parts. It's all the Lord. And so isn't it interesting, the imagery? Your text might say that it was a a smoking fire pot, a smoking furnace. And I thought, you know, is there any impact to that? Is there any connection to that? Well, maybe, maybe not. But I found some passages where similar text was used. Deuteronomy 4.20 says, But as for you, as for you, the Lord took you and brought you out of the iron smelting furnace out of Egypt to be the people of his inheritance as you now are. So I wonder if maybe the smoking furnace, the smoking oven was a foreshadow to the iron furnace that was referred to as Egypt. First Kings 8.51 For they are your people and your heritage which brought you out of Egypt from the midst of the iron furnace. Jeremiah 11.4 I commanded your fathers when I brought them out of the land of Egypt from the iron furnace saying listen to my voice and do all that I command you. And we also know that iron furnaces that smoking pots were used in the refinement process. 
the refinement of gold and silver and clearing off the dross. So, just some interesting imagery. How about the flaming torch? Or your text may say burning lamp or blazing torch. Isaiah 62.1 says that for Zion's sake I will not keep silent and for Jerusalem's sake I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation is a burning torch. Zechariah 12.6 On that day I will make the clans of Judah like a blazing pot in the midst of wood like a flaming torch among sheaves. So some interesting imagery. But then the one that I really want to call, call us to remembrance is maybe the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. You guys remember that imagery? Exodus 13 and Exodus 14, we first see God showing up as a pillar cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night even as they are being chased and pursued by the Egyptians, and as they get to the Red Sea there, God is watching over them. He's, he's a cloud leading them by day, maybe protecting them from the scorching sun. He's a pillar of fire by night, giving them illumination to lead their way and keeping them warm at night. And He does this as He's leading them through the wilderness. So I don't want to draw this exact connection. I don't want to say this is exactly what God is foreshadowing when he passes through these sacrifices. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying it's some interesting imagery that we see. And we know that throughout Scripture, God is referred to as light. The Holy Spirit is referred to as being the baptizer with fire in Acts. And so God makes and reiterates his covenant with Abraham. I just want us to think for just a second as we kind of pull this together. Think about this covenant with Abraham in light of the new covenant that we have in Christ Jesus. The Abrahamic covenant was sealed with the blood of the sacrifices, right? The flaming torch, the smoking oven passes through the blood that is cascading down between these halves of these carcasses. It was God who passed between the animals' bodies. It was God who passed through the blood that ran between the halves. Doesn't Jesus' blood confirm our new covenant? Remember what Jesus said at the Last Supper? This is my body broken for you and this is the blood of the new covenant given for you. The new covenant Our salvation in Christ Jesus is confirmed through the blood of his sacrifice. Jesus became the priest who offers the sacrifice of the new covenant. Hebrews 7.26 says, He is our great high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. So not only is he the sacrifice himself in the new covenant, He is the priest who administers the sacrifice. So he is both the one laying on the altar and the one standing at the altar administering the atonement. Jesus becomes the mediator of the new covenant. This term mediator is used in 1 Timothy, Hebrews 9, Hebrews 12. Therefore he is mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. So he becomes the witness as well. 
the witness to the covenant, but also the mediator between us and our Heavenly Father. We no longer have to go before this human priest, but in Christ Jesus we can come directly to the Father, directly to the Holy of Holies. We're not banned from that innermost space of the temple. We have access to the Holy of Holies in heaven because of our mediator. And so the last point this morning is that like the Abrahamic covenant, God's new covenant with us is executed and upheld by himself. Just like the Abrahamic covenant, God's new covenant with us is executed and upheld by himself. You know, God's expectation of Abram was to walk before him and be blameless. God said, walk before me and be blameless. You see, God didn't expect Abraham to be sinless. He expected Abraham to be devoted to God. Walk before me and be blameless is set your heart towards me and be devoted to me. Not necessarily be sinless, but be devoted to me. You know, God doesn't expect us to be sinless, but he does expect us to be devoted to him. He understands that we're going to stumble. He understands that we're going to make missteps. But he wants our hearts to be devoted to him. And when we stumble, 2 Timothy says, when we stumble, God is faithful to forgive us. When we are faithless, he is faithful because he cannot deny himself. When we fall short, he picks up the slack. When we fall short of his standard and when we struggle with our faith and we are faithless, he says, because of who I am, I am faithful. I don't cut you off. I don't disqualify you. I come and I meet you and I hold up the end of the agreement because that's who I am. And so aren't we grateful that God provides us comfort when we don't understand his ways like Abram? I don't understand how you're going to fulfill his promise. I don't see it happening yet and I'm scared. But God comforted Abraham and said, no, I'm going to, I'm going to do this for you. You can trust me. He was patient. Are we grateful that God has granted us his righteousness when we place our trust in Jesus? One of my favorite verses, we talked about it on Wednesday morning, one of my favorite verses, 2 Corinthians 5.21, we call it the great exchange. He became sin, who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness in Christ Jesus. The righteousness of God in Christ. He became sin. He, Jesus was sinless, and he becomes sinful, sin on our behalf. He assumes, he takes on our sin, so that in exchange we could be credited and given his righteousness. How wonderful is that? And lastly, aren't we grateful that God has called us to faith in a new covenant, and he is faithful? When we are weak, he is strong. And he upholds his promises to us because of who he is. Amen?